0: Well, please return with me to Leviticus chapter 7. While you're doing that, I will just remind you once more that uh, following the service this morning, we're going to be gathering downstairs for lunch. Uh, If you were not aware that we were doing this, uh, don't let that stop you. Come and join us. The Lord always multiplies the loaves and fishes and So far, I don't think anyone has gone hungry, Um, so please make it a point of staying with us. And then this afternoon, we're going to come back up here, and we're going to talk about art. We're going to talk about beauty. We're going to talk about what God has gifted this world as He has given people certain abilities to express who he is. Now that obviously doesn't always happen. But the scripture tells us that is the purpose of art. And we're going to look to the word this afternoon and see what the scripture tells us about these things. So please stay and uh, join us. Now, If you have your Bibles open to Leviticus chapter 7, we're going to pick up with verse 11. It's a very long passage this morning. We're going through the rest of the chapter, so I'm not going to read through it all in one block, but we'll do that as we make our way through the passage. Let's ask the Lord's blessing once more upon his word. Father, this is your word, and we are your people, and so this is you speaking to us. Praise you. What a wonderful thing to hear the voice of God. Speak to us today, Father, in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We've made the point several times that the book of Leviticus is, in fact, God's direct words spoken to Moses. He commanded Moses on the mountain as to how his people were to approach him in worship. And that's why we can say that no book of the Bible contains more of the direct words of God than Leviticus. All of the Bible is God's word, and all of the Bible comprises God's words, but not all of the Bible is an actual record of God's verbal speech to one of his servants. And that's, in large part, what we find here in Leviticus. These are the words God spoke to Moses and told Moses, write these down and tell everybody. So this is a book which in large measure comes from God's direct words to Moses, which are then shared with the people of God in the Old Covenant and with us today. Now, as we've been seeing from the very beginning of our study, Leviticus is a book about worship. In fact, the first 16 chapters of Leviticus contain regulations about the various sacrifices, what was to be done, how it was to be done, where it was to be done, some important hints as to why it is to be done. And all of that comes together within the context of Old Covenant Israel. This book of Leviticus contains a formal initiation of the priesthood of Israel. The tabernacle has been described for us in Exodus, and some of the functions of the priesthood had been described at the end of Exodus, but the priesthood had not been formally inaugurated or initiated. That's described for us here in the book of Leviticus, as we will see in the future. Now, there's a discussion in the book of Leviticus about a distinction between what is clean and unclean, and that has a tremendous ethical significance for the people of God, as well as tremendous worship significance for the people of God. We're going to see that as well in the future. The book of Leviticus records for us the glorious rituals of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the most important day on the ancient Jewish calendar. And all of that tells us so much about the Old Testament pre-understanding of the work to be accomplished with the coming of Christ. The last 11 chapters of the book of Leviticus give us ceremonial holiness codes, if you will. So you put all of that together, and it's inescapable that we see that the book of Leviticus is about these two things, worship and consecration. And you can't separate them because you've got to be consecrated if you're going to worship. Now, we've also said several times that the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus describe five great sacrifices that were brought to the Lord by the people of God. And these sacrifices were chosen at the discretion of the people, They were to be offered out of hearts, full of gratitude to God for his forgiveness, for his blessing, for his provision. These five sacrifices for these reasons were sacrifices that were brought voluntarily, willingly, freely by the people when important seasons of their life came along, when important events might have occurred, when there was something uh, particularly um, uh, important that had happened, and they have needed to come to the Lord with a, a burnt offering for the forgiveness of their sin. They need their relationship with God restored. Perhaps they have sinned against someone else. That has needed to be dealt with the book of Leviticus describes these sacrifices, as we've seen, from two different perspectives. It first describes them from the perspective of the worshiper, the one who is bringing the offering. What were the commands for the one who was making one of these voluntary sacrifices? What was he to do? That's the first thing we've seen. And then, We go back over those same sacrifices, but this time from a different perspective, from the perspective of the priest. What was the priest's responsibility and prerogative in the offering of these sacrifices? The last few times that we've looked at Leviticus, we've been in chapter 6 and now in chapter 7, we're already into that section that is focusing upon these sacrifices from the perspective of the priest what the priest's obligations and privileges were. Now, as we say, these sacrifices, unlike the great sacrifices of the appointed and required festivals, these sacrifices are all voluntary. They were personal. They were spontaneous. So how, then, did these kinds of ritual sacrifices and offerings function in the Old Testament The old covenant religion of ancient Israel well first of all we've said that these sacrifices are a means to aid God's people in the experience of his presence they would bring these sacrifices to the tabernacle and the tabernacle was the central focus of the worship of ancient Israel They would come to the tabernacle, and these rituals there taking place at the tabernacle were designed to aid the experience of the people of God as they come into the presence of God. They were also a means for the people to be able to render thanksgiving unto God. How was one to show thanksgiving to the Lord as he provides for you? in every aspect of your life. Well, through this system of worship, the people of God were to make public sacrifices of thanksgiving. They were to publicly come to the Lord and acknowledge that all that they have is from Him. And all that they are belongs to Him. It was also a means to express the desire for renewed fellowship with God. There were sin offerings, there were guilt offerings that were prescribed amongst the great offerings that one had to offer if one was uh, a, a Jew in ancient Israel. But there were also these voluntary offerings. If one had strayed from one's own fidelity to the Lord and recognized, I need to be reconciled to God, I need to have fellowship with God restored, these offerings were provided for that purpose. They were also a means to deepen the believer's approach to God. If one were attempting to add Wait to one's prayers, to one's petition that one is lifting up to the Lord. One might come to the priest and to the tabernacle with an offering along with that petition, as we see in the life of Hannah, when she came to pray for the Lord to give her a son. She came to the tabernacle. Now, these sacrifices function in various ways, and so far we've covered five of them. We've covered the burnt offering, uh, where the, the whole of the offering is consumed by the Lord, consumed by fire on the altar. We've covered the grain offering, which is a pledge of dedication of the person, of the worshiper, to God. We've covered the fellowship offering, or the peace offering, that's the offering that we're going, to look, we're going to come back to again today. And we've covered an offering for unintentional sin as well, reminding us that God is very concerned about sin. He doesn't just let things slide. Even if we didn't know that we were committing sin, once we do find out, that sin has to be dealt with. As we've studied the guilt offering, as we looked at the passages in Leviticus chapter 5 and chapter 6, which speak of this glorious sacrifice, we come now to something which follows that sacrifice here in chapter 7, beginning with verse 11. And again, I want to point out even before we begin, there are three different sections to this Long passage that we're going to deal with today, and I just want to tell you what they are up front so you know where we're going. The first part of the passage is in verse 11 through 21, and that passage covers the peace offering or the fellowship offering. The second part of the passage comes in verses 22 through 27, and that covers what we might call the law of the blood, or to be even more specific, the law of the fat and the blood. And then thirdly, verses 28 to 38 cover the wave offering and the portion of the sacrifices that were due to the priests. So there's an offering within an offering, as we're going to see. Now I want to focus on three big picture things that are brought to our attention by God in his word through these different aspects of chapter 7, verses 11 through 38. We come, by the way, at the end of this chapter, to the end of the study of these five great sacrifices, and we then move into a new portion of the book when we come to chapter 8, as we will, Lord willing, next week. But, let's read God's Word from Leviticus chapter 7. And again, what I'm going to do is just read each section as we go through And then we'll spend some time in each place. Beginning with verse 11. Now this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings which shall be presented to the Lord. If he offers it by way of thanksgiving, then along with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, he shall offer unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil and cakes of well-stirred fine flour mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of the peace of his peace offerings for thanksgiving he shall present his offering with cakes of leavened bread of this he shall present one of every offering as a contribution to the Lord it shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offerings now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of his thanksgiving peace offering it shall be eaten on the day of his offering he shall not leave any of it over until morning But if the sacrifice of his offering is a votive or a free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day what is left of it may be eaten. But what is left over from the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burned with fire. So if any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering should ever be eaten on the third day, he who offers it will not be accepted. And it will not be reckoned to his benefit. It shall be an offensive thing, and the person who eats of it will bear his own iniquity. Also the flesh that touches anything unclean shall not be eaten. It shall be burned with fire. As for other flesh, anyone who is clean may eat such flesh. But the person who eats the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, which belong to the Lord, in his uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from his people. When anyone touches anything unclean, whether human uncleanness or an unclean animal or any unclean detestable thing, and eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the peace offerings which belong to the Lord, that person shall be cut off from his people. The first part of this description is the celebration of the peace offering, the fellowship offering, a celebration of the worshiper's relationship with God. He has peace with God. That's why, as we read through that, you might have noticed the peace offering is connected to thanksgiving because the one who is giving the offering is being thankful that he is in right relationship to God the greatest joy that any believer in the Old Testament or the New, the greatest joy that any believer can experience is that joy of the experience of peace and fellowship with God. And this peace offering is the worshiper's public expression of his delight in God and his thankfulness that he is now in right relationship with God. And we can understand this, I hope, because we understand that if left to ourselves, we would have no relationship with God except that of judge. If left to ourselves, there would be no peace with God. In order for sinful human beings to have peace with God, God is the one who has to initiate it. Therefore, offerings are brought for thanksgiving. You and I, because of what God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ, if we have come to faith in Christ, if we have repented of our sin, if we have trusted in Jesus, then we are reconciled to God. There is peace with God. But it's not because of anything that we have done. It's because of what God has done, and so we come to him in thankfulness. God ought to, if he counted our sins against us, condemn us, but through Jesus Christ, we are not condemned. There is no condemnation for any who are in Jesus Christ. And so as we're looking at this in an Old Testament context, this worshiper wants to spontaneously and personally and freely and willingly express to God thanksgiving for his enjoyment of God's favor. And so he brings this peace offering. And in the peace offering, those worshipers who are thankful to God for God's peace towards them, God's fellowship with them, bring an offering and they participate in a meal. That's what we're seeing in that passage we've just read. The one who brings the offering to the Lord eats of that offering. It's a meal that he shares with God. I just want you to see a few things here. First of all, this offering serves to aid the Old Testament worshiper who wanted to celebrate the joy of his peace with God, but as the Old Testament worshiper wants to celebrate that joy of peace with God, that Old Testament worshiper has to do very carefully all that God has instructed him. He's not free to offer even thanksgiving in any way he desires. God is given specific instruction concerning how this is to happen. So the way that worshiper expresses his joy in peace with God is carefully ordered around the instructions of God's word. Now, though the ritual aspect of this is gone in the New Covenant... We don't do this anymore. We're not, there's no place for us to bring sacrifices to. There are no animals being slaughtered. We have no complex, detailed Levitical rituals recorded for us in the New Covenant. Things are different in the New Covenant. But the principle remains the same. If you're going to enjoy the presence of God and exult in His peace and favor and fellowship, then you have to do so according to his word. In the new covenant, of course, that means we must come in the name of Jesus Christ. We must come by Christ into the presence of God, dependent upon Christ and all that he has done in order to reconcile us to God, in order to offer us the grace of God in the gospel. We come to the Father, through the Son. We can't come any other way. The only way we can even come through Jesus is if we come by faith, having been clothed then in his righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ which reconciles us to God. It's the the righteousness of Christ which enables us to have peace with God because the penalty for our sin has been paid by another, by Jesus. And so we have peace with God. Here in the Old Testament, this worshiper brought an offering that was cooked. And while it was cooking... He would turn and he would be declaring to the whole congregation that was gathered there in the tabernacle his praise of God and his thanksgiving. He might stand before the people of God and testify of how the Lord has been good to him. This is all done publicly Many of the Psalms might well come from just this kind of experience, where David is doing just this. He is coming to the Lord with a peace offering, and he turns to the congregation to testify to them of why he's bringing this peace offering to the Lord. The Lord has been good to me. The Lord has delivered me from all of my enemies. I own the Lord as my shield and my defender, my mighty tower. Just read through the Psalms. You see that language everywhere. And it's language that comes out, if not the actual sacrifice, it comes out of that which is being reflected in the sacrifice. I want to proclaim the goodness of God and all that he has done, and I want to do it publicly. I want to thank him. So the worshiper declares to the gathered congregation what the Lord has done. And then in this peace offering, the whole congregation there shares in the meal. The worshiper in this peace offering has to bring more than that which will simply feed himself. It's what we're doing this afternoon We bring food for more than just ourselves, and we share it with one another. And that's what was happening at this sacrifice. See, it assumed that if he is truly thankful for God's mercies to him, and if he is truly enjoying fellowship with God, he will then have a spirit of generosity and concern for the people of God. And he will bring more than enough for the people of God to participate in this great communal meal. I think the principles of this chapter are probably in Paul's mind when he was writing to the Corinthian church about the Lord's Supper. Because he's criticizing the Corinthians for coming to the Lord's table thinking about no one but themselves. In the display of all of their extraordinary spiritual gifts, they're not thinking about the body of Christ, that is the church. They're not thinking about their brothers and sisters. They're looking out for themselves. The apostle Paul says, you come to the Lord's table like that, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to die. There are others who are sick, and have fallen asleep because of the casual way that they have come before the Lord. And so the apostle draws from the principles of Leviticus 7, even as he expounds to us how we're to come to the Lord's table there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Notice also, here in these, the last three verses of this section, 19, 20, and 21, stressing ritual purity as absolutely essential for participating in this offering and this meal. And that ritual purity, of course, is reflective of the ethical demands of fellowship with God. We've already spoken about this. You just can't come to God any old way. If we were to stand before God... In our own so-called righteousness, we would be destroyed. But we don't come in our own righteousness. We come in the righteousness of Christ. Imputed to us when we believe. And as the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, we are reminded of something we're reminded that fellowship with God depends upon righteousness. It depends upon perfect righteousness. That you, you can't come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm enjoying your peace and your presence when you're living a life of rebellion against Him. You can't come before the Lord and talk about enjoying fellowship with Him, if you take Him for granted, if you live your life the way you want without a thought to Him, in this sacrifice, that kind of hypocrisy is exposed. The Lord will judge that kind of hypocrisy. The outward claim of enjoying fellowship and peace with God when every day of our lives we live in such a way that that peace could never be possible. God will expose that. See, the point of this passage is that those who have truly experienced peace with God by His grace and who want to celebrate it and who want to thank Him for it, they will do so willingly and at personal expense with generosity in their hearts toward others who feel the same way and have experienced the same thing. That's why we gather together on the Lord's Day. We don't just sit at home alone and open our Bibles and pray. We gather together because the Lord wants us to be with others in whom he has done the same thing he's done for us. He wants us to gather together with his people whom he has reconciled. So that he reconciles his people with himself, and then he reconciles us to one another. And that's glorious. And that's what's going on here in this sacrifice. Well, there's much more we could say, but we need to move on a bit. Verses 22 through 27, we have this law of the fat and the blood Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall not eat any fat from an ox, a sheep, or a goat. Also, the fat of an animal which dies, and the fat of an animal torn by beasts may be put to any other use, but you must certainly not eat it. For whoever eats the fat of the animal, from which an offering by fire is offered to the Lord, even the person who eats shall be cut off from his people." You are not to eat any blood, either of bird or animal, in any of your dwellings. Any person who eats any blood, even that person, shall be cut off from his people. Now, we're seeing something here. And this is the second part of the passage we're looking at this morning. The law of the fat and the blood that the fat belongs to the Lord and the blood belongs to the Lord. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, sacrificial worship, the fat and the blood belong to the Lord because the fat symbolizes the best. Now, that, That's not logical to some of us. Right. I really like meat but I cut off the fat. Now, some of you may like a little bit of fat with your meat, but that's typically not the part you want most. But in the mind of the Hebrew, the fat, which included more than what we would consider fat today. It also included other parts of the animal. In the mind of the Hebrew, that was the choicest part of the animal. It was the best. And by reserving that for himself, God is indicating that the best belongs to him. And by forbidding the taking of blood, he's indicating that blood as a symbol of life and as a symbol of the means by which God gives life, that also belongs to him. Life belongs to him. Lots of different arguments can be made, biblically, about why abortion is evil. But it all boils down to this. Life belongs to God. So in the Old Testament, sacrificial worship, the fat and the blood belong to God because the best belongs to God and life itself belongs to God. And the point is simply this. Those who love the Lord are going to give their best. And they will acknowledge that every aspect of their lives belongs Mm. to Him from him and belongs to him. See, real faith freely gives its best to God and owns God as the Lord of life. This reservation of the fat and the blood was a reservation of the best and of life itself for the Lord. And when the Old Testament worshiper brought the fat and the blood to the Lord, he was acknowledging that. And that's what we're seeing here verses 22 through 27. And there's one more section we need to look at this morning. And that's verses 28 to 38. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, "Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, he who offers the sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord, shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings." His own hands are to bring offerings by fire to the Lord. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be presented as a wave offering before the Lord. The priest shall offer up the fat in smoke on the altar, but the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. You shall give the right thigh to the priest as a contribution from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. The one among the sons of Aaron who offers the blood of the peace offerings and the fat, the right thigh, shall be his as his portion. For I have taken the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the contribution from the sons of Israel from the sacrifices of their peace offerings and have given them to Aaron the priest and to his sons as their due forever from the sons of Israel. This is that which is consecrated to Aaron And that which is consecrated to his sons from the offerings by fire to the Lord in that day when he presented them to serve as priests to the Lord. These the Lord had commanded to be given them from the sons of Israel in the day that he anointed them. It is their due forever throughout their generations. This is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, and the sin offering, and the guilt offering, and the ordination offering, and the sacrifice of the peace offerings, which the Lord commanded Moses at Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the sons of Israel to present their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness. So as the fat and the blood were given to the Lord and completely consumed by fire on the altar, the thigh and the breast of the peace offering is to be given to the priest. And in signification of this, the priest would lift it up and wave it so that the people could see. Hence the title, wave offering. Now, this accomplished a couple of different things. First, it allowed the worshiper to know that the sacrifice had been offered as instructed. But it did something else. It enabled the priest to stand before the people and to receive from God through the people without... Being ashamed. I'm not crazy about preaching on giving. But I don't shy away from it. Because in this place, we only preach what the Scripture says. Scripture has a lot to say about giving, but it always puts a pastor in a weird spot because whether anybody else perceives it or not, it feels like you get up in the pulpit and you say, all right, everybody, be obedient to what God tells you in his word and give because I need my paycheck. Here, you have the priests who are in that position. And this is a rebuke to any pastor who would fail to proclaim the full counsel of God, even when it comes to giving. Because the priest takes those parts of the offering and he goes out and he waves them. Yep, these are mine. The Lord has given them to me. Thank you very much. I'm not ashamed of it. You come into the New Testament. And what are we told? Every workman is worthy of his hire. God provides for those he calls to the ministry. And that's, what, that's part of what we're finding here as well. God's people are to give to the Lord, but a portion, that wave portion of their peace offering is to be provided for the priests for their personal care, for the support of the ministry. So even as the people of God bring this voluntary offering to the Lord, they were at the same time giving to the support of the ministry. And that's what We do, brothers and sisters, every time we come here and we put an envelope in the box. We are giving to the support of the ministry. We are giving it to the Lord, and the Lord is using it to accomplish His purposes in the world. This principle is one that Paul draws on in 1 Corinthians, that servants of the Lord and his word are to live by the service of the word and God's people are to be willing and generous in their support. God's principle is that these ministers are to be well cared for and they're given a very choice part of the sacrifice. Not the best part, that belongs to the Lord. As we think about these peace offerings, and as we think about the law of the blood and the fat, and as we think about the wave offerings, let us think of the enduring principles of worship which are laid out for us in these first seven chapters. But more than that, don't stop there. You can see, we have just read verse 37 and 38 the last two verses of chapter 7, and it's clearly a conclusion. It's clearly telling us, all right, this section about these sacrifices, that's done now. We're going to move on to something related, but something else. That's what we'll do next week. But everything we have seen in these first seven chapters of Leviticus are not intended to be left here in Leviticus. Leviticus. They are intended to bring us forward to the New Testament. They're intended to show us Jesus. They're intended to tell us about the new covenant where the the rituals and the ceremonies are no longer in play, but the principles remain. God is glorified through his people, and his people can only be his people through Jesus Christ who makes peace where once there was enmity. Praise God. Father, thank you so much. We are so grateful to be reminded once more that who we are now is entirely dependent upon what you have done. Apart from the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ, in our place, there would only be enmity. But now there is peace. Now there is reconciliation. Now there is fellowship. And we rejoice. We thank you for it, Father. And we pray that as we continue to look at Jesus in the book of Leviticus, we might see more and more of Him. And we might understand more and more of what You have accomplished in order to reconcile us to Yourself. This is what we desire, Father. Bring it to pass, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.